0: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. You've undoubtedly heard in the news about this trucker convoy that is heading to Ottawa to protest the vaccine mandate for truckers. Now, Prime Minister Trudeau yesterday spoke about this and he said that he believes the vast majority of truckers in Canada are vaccinated and will not be impacted by the cross-border vaccine mandate. But as all things with COVID these days, the situation has become more and more political as this convoy now seems to represent much more than just the vaccine mandate policy for truckers. For more on this, we're joined by Lori Turnbull, who's a director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Lori, thank you for joining us this morning. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Do you feel this issue has mushroomed now beyond what it originally started out as?
1: Oh, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, as, as you were saying in your opening, like the vast majority of truckers are vaccinated and the Canadian truckers Alliance has confirmed that. And so that helps to mitigate, I think, to a certain extent the any concerns about the supply chain, not that there will, there is are none, but just to sort of put it in context about what the potential effect could be about the vaccine mandate for truckers. But It is not the case that there's some sort of, you know, sector based resilience to vaccines in the trucking industry. Not at all. If most of them are vaccinated, we're really talking about a small number of people who would be affected by this. But you're right. Like this has become a political symbol and a political kind of lightning rod and a touch point for other things <clears throat> based on freedom, the role of government in your life, whether government can really tell you to get a vaccine or not. And so it's sort of taking away, you know, it's get, it's getting some distance from trucking and becoming more of a sort of political statement that we can see is is being supported, you know, financially across the country.
0: Right. So given that then, though, how effective is it going to be if everybody seems to be glomming onto it with a, a different reason?
1: Mm-hmm. It's, it's true. So, I mean, I think in terms of, having an effect on the government policy around vaccine mandates, it's not going to have an effect at all. I mean, the Canadian government has dug in. The U.S. government has dug in. This is done. This, like, the, the protest won't affect that. But I'm not sure if that's really what the protest is about anymore anyway. I think it's more about raising awareness to issues related to freedom and issues related to the government's, um, you know, legitimacy in being in telling you that you need to get a vaccine in order to be able to do your job and so, you know, as you said, it's sort of bringing people together around that cause right. as opposed to, you know, the specific mandate for truckers.
0: Right. But that kind of cause has been around since we first started talking about vaccines and having to have them. So for, you know, a year and a half. So if, if there were truckers in this convoy who really wanted to talk about the trucker situation, are they going to well, lose out?
1: I mean, like... Possibly. But I mean, I can assume that there there are still going to be channels for, for that conversation to happen. But again, I really think that the government has made its mind up and you're not going to see a reversal. I think, um, you know, also, it's typical in a protest situation. Really, the protest is about trying to raise public awareness and obviously try to raise money. Um, if you're having a conversation with government about policy, you're doing that in a, in a room somewhere, you're doing that on the phone, you're doing that behind closed doors, it's not something that spills out literally onto the street. And so I don't think this was really ever about the policy, it's more about really politicizing the issue of vaccines and government intervention. And I think it's problematic that we're seeing that really, we're, a, a kind of lack of nuance, a lack of attention to the various issues that are informing this debate and everything is very polarized now. It's yeah. just you know you are for or
0: against, and that's dangerous. And it didn't take very long, though, did it, Lori? Because <laughs> this convoy started, and all of a sudden you see politicians posting about it, and you see the GoFundMe raising a couple million dollars, and you think, well, that that was fast.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. This was like, you know, not overnight, but not over too many nights like this really took off. And the money is a kind of empirical indicator of the fact that there is support for this. And there's also overlap in the organization of the Maverick Party based in Alberta. And so that it is a concern. It's an additional concern that if political parties really start to kind of stake out ground on this, it makes it harder for people to like. We lose a sense of a, of a consensus and a right, a, you know, and any the kind discussion? of common ground.
0: Yeah, where's the discussion? Exactly. If all of a sudden it's going to get polarized and right away, okay, well, here's this argument again. Where is the discussion on the particular issue of the truckers and the vaccine mandate going to go?
1: Well, exactly. There's. I agree with you. There is no discussion. There's just sort of you know back and forth, and it's it's no one is actually having a dialogue. I mean, and to be honest, and this is a kind of depressing thing to say. I don't think we're going to see that improve anytime soon. I think when Parliament reconvenes in Ottawa next week, it's going to be a similar kind of attitude where it seems like Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives have really kind of gone on one side of this around, and they're they're using words like vaccine vendetta. I don't know why they're saying vendetta. And then, you know, Trudeau and the Liberals are just going to, you know, drill down on the other side. And so even Parliament, I don't expect to have much of a civilized debate about this.
0: Isn't this, though, exactly what Canadians have said they don't like in the last couple of years?
1: I know, 100%. And people have been saying things, you know, when they look at the US, and they say, Oh, my God, could that happen here? Hello, it is happening here. This is not different. This, you know, and I hope that, you know, it it doesn't get a whole lot worse. I really hope that and I hope that we can find solutions. But I mean, this is exactly what Canadians say we aren't, is this sort of totally polarized debate.
0: And so how does that happen? You know, we look at what's happening in the United States. Is it with events like this that people think just in the moment, oh, I'm going to capitalize on just this one thing, but it becomes a bit of a slippery slope, doesn't it?
1: Absolutely. I think there's a few factors, to be honest. I mean, obviously, the pandemic is extremely stressful for everybody, and I think that does contribute over time. To a, you know, a sense of, of of just feeling separated from things, perhaps feeling less attached to people, and feeling less attached to whatever a common ground and a common solution is. I think we've seen you know in a variety of ways, we've seen more polarized debate, more toxicity online, more attacks on social media, more disinformation and misinformation. All of that has become more prevalent and problematic over COVID 19. And so, you know, there's there's a whole bunch of arguments to be made about that in terms of, like, cause and effect, but it doesn't help anything. Right. And on top of that, the parties are, you know, to be honest, like, p- politicians sometimes look for wedge issues. They look for ways to try to identify, you know, an issue and connect with people, and that's not always in the public interest. It sometimes is actually the opposite.
0: Mm, you said something so interesting there. So do you feel that we spend, we all, all of us, spend too much time looking for differences with other people, as opposed to looking for the things that we share?
1: Oh, yeah. I think at this point, that's exactly what's going on. I mean, not, not all the time, right? Like, I mean, the, I think there is a distorting effect, particularly with social media, and that you go on there and you think that this is representative of a conversation, when in fact, you know, let's, let's back up a little bit. The vast majority of Canadians are vaccinated and support vaccines the vast majority of people will support lockdowns, restrictions, whatever measures are necessary to get through this. It's not that there is not a consensus. It's that the polarized views, this, the extremes are being amplified. And they're being amplified by social media. They're being amplified by things like this protest. And people are paying attention to that. And it's making it seem like we're much less united than we are. But I mean, the same could be said for the u s, right? Like it's yeah. it's important for us to have those debates in ways that we can see ourselves reflected back and say, yes, you know, there are lots of things that keep us together,
0: so true. Lori, thank you for your time on that. Thank you, too. Take care appreciate that. Lori Turnbull is a director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University, talking about what started as this, you know, vaccine mandate trucker convoy to bring awareness to the issue to Ottawa and has really morphed into this much bigger, issue now that you know people are fundraising off of it and all sorts of things going on, but it doesn't seem like it's going to change anything when it comes to the actual vaccine mandate, which was the original issue.
2: This is Mornings with
0: Simi. Was Global Affairs Canada the subject of a cyber attack? Well, that's how security and government sources are describing it. But Global Affairs or Canada's Cybersecurity Agency are not commenting on exactly what happened. But there is concern that this attack was conducted by Russia or perhaps Russia-backed hackers. For more on this, we're talking now with Mercedes Stevenson, our Global News Ottawa bureau chief and, of course, host of the West Block. Good morning, Mercedes. Good morning, Zimmy. So what do we know about this right now?
3: So we know that uh, according to the sources I spoke to, the attack was first noticed on Friday um, and that it went on throughout the weekend. I'm not sure the status of it this morning. We're trying to get an update right now. But as of yesterday, they were still actively fighting this attack. Um, and we don't know how much the hackers were able to gain access to the system, uh, whether they were simply able to pull off a denial of service attack, which makes it hard to get in. Um, and by the way, the government has to compound that because to stop the attack, they have to start shutting systems down on their own, uh, which also creates issues if you're trying to access your email or get on the internet at Foreign Affairs. Um, but we don't know if any information was stolen or compromised or corrupted, which can also happen in a hack, where hackers will get in and start to change information in government computers. So we don't have a sense of that, but uh, all of the sources I spoke to, and there was several, um, said that this was considered to be a significant attack. It was sensitive. It was not something the government was happy, had leaked out. There has been interest from allied Countries and finding out about this because they're also anticipating potential attacks. Uh, And the belief universally among the people I spoke to was that Russia was behind the attack, uh, that there were signatures there that were being looked at. Um, And there was actually a warning last week put out by the Communications Security Establishment, that's Canadian signals intelligence, that folks should expect their infrastructure to be attacked. Um, As far as potential attacks go, this one obviously created some real issues. It targeted Melanie Jolie's department. She, of course, just came back from Ukraine and Global Affairs Canada has been at the forefront of pushing back against Russia as they have the military buildup on the border with Ukraine. Um, So it's believed that that's likely what happened here. They're still um, digging around and looking into it. The good news is sort of it's an inconvenient attack, but it's not critical infrastructure. Um, There is certainly concern inside the government that you could see more substantial attacks as this goes on.
0: Right. I'm wondering, is this kind of like a warning shot across the bow? Yeah, retaliation, I think, is more
3: how uh, the sources I spoke to described it. They weren't happy Melanesia Lee. The Russians were not happy Melanesia Lee went to Ukraine. They're not happy with Canada's public stance. They're not happy with the $120 million loan uh, that Canada is giving to Ukraine. But right now, Justin Trudeau and his cabinet are behind virtual closed doors having a cabinet retreat. And one of the things they're looking at is potentially sending weapons to Ukraine that's something else that could potentially trigger uh, another attack. I know that the government certainly uh, expects that as they continue along the path that they are taking uh, in terms of supporting Ukraine, uh, there is a very high likelihood they will continue to suffer uh, Russian attacks. This one, I think, was sort of um, one One source described to me as proportionate. Um, the, the Russians weren't happy about Jolie's visit or the announcement. They made it clear they weren't happy, but they didn't go after something essential. The real concern is what vulnerabilities there could be could be on things like power grids uh or essential infrastructure and whether Canada is prepared we are the subject of regular cyber attacks in Canada uh, by both China and Russia it's rarely discussed publicly by the government but it's an ongoing concern in the cyber community uh, about whether we are doing enough to prevent those kinds of attacks and and to address them this one it seems like they caught it and started fighting it relatively right. quickly but again, we don't know the full fallout from this attack yet.
0: So do you get the sense then, Mercedes, that this is a bit of a wake up call that now perhaps authorities will go, OK, we definitely need to be prepared for this? I'd like to say
3: yes, but <laughs> um, there have been a lot of cyber attacks and um, not necessarily a lot of changes. I think they'll be more vigilant because they're aware and the Russians have basically said they're going to do this overtly. Um, so there's certainly much more... Um, I think, vigilant than they typically would be. But some of the, and by the way, Canada has some really amazing folks who work in cybersecurity for the government. Uh, they're very quiet. They are like the spy nerds. You never see them. You would never be able to pick them out. Super duper smart who are fighting this. Um, but a-, a lot of folks who work in cybersecurity will say, these are longer term issues about dedicating more resources to defenses, more resources to experts. Um, it's not something you can really fix overnight. You can harden it. Uh, and in fairness, you know, the Russians and the Chinese are, Are very very good at this they're extremely talented and they have people who work for the government who do nothing but hack systems all day long uh we we don't tend to have those same numbers of large people attempting to hack into
0: foreign adversaries computers so
3: they've got a pretty significant capability on this
0: right and you mentioned that there is a cabinet retreat going on then so is this just one of the topics being discussed there
3: Yeah, I mean, it was not a planned topic, but it's certainly on the agenda now. Um, they're talking about the possibility of sending weapons to Ukraine. This is something global news broke last night. Um, we'd heard sort of some back and forth on the possibility. I can tell you it is before cabinet and senior national security sources expect that it will be approved. Uh, we learned what's on the list that is being, if it is approved, will go. It includes everything from pistols, sniper rifles, machine guns, uh, ammo that would go with them and optical sites. um, All small arms really at this point that are being considered, guns and ammunition. We're talking in the hundreds, not in the thousands. It's it's nothing that's going to win a war, but it's a show of support if it gets sent. The Prime Minister is expected to make an announcement tomorrow related to Ukraine. Uh, It would not surprise me if it is in fact the shipment of these weapons because I know the military is already moving to pre-position them if Cabinet signs off on this uh, to be able to move very quickly on on that front. Uh, And of course at Cabinet they're also talking about About COVID 19. They're talking about the economy. So, all kinds of things on the agenda, but certainly Ukraine is
0: really the headline right now for them. Busy one. All right, Mercedes, thank you. Thanks, Simi. Mercedes Stevenson is our Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of The West Block, talking about this cyber attack that apparently happened on Global Affairs Canada. For more information on that and to read Mercedes' complete story, check it out at globalnews.ca. This is Mornings with Simi. Can you name any senators that sit in the Red Chamber here in Canada, or better yet, could you identify one if they were walking down the street? Now, if you can, good for you. Turns out you're probably better at that than most British Columbians. There's a new poll out by a research company that shows that fewer than 1 in 20 British Columbians are able to name one of the five people that currently represent B.C. in the Senate. Joining us now is Mario Conseco, the president of Research Company. For more on this, good morning, Mario.
2: Good morning, Simi. Great to be here with you. I have
0: to say, this doesn't really surprise me. Does it surprise you?
2: <laughs> the number is very low. You know, I thought it was going to be closer to 10%, maybe 15%. But to only have 4% of British Colombians who can identify one of the f- uh, five senators that we currently have in the Red Chamber was certainly very low. You know, it um, certainly shows that uh, it's not a body uh, legislatively that we care about too much or that we follow.
0: Right. And yet, though, people have thoughts about whether or not we should be electing
2: senators. Well, that is the delicious irony in all of this. You know, we have very few British Columbians who know even how many senators we have in Ottawa, Uh, even fewer who know who they are. uh, But we still have 58 percent who say, I would like to vote for my senator the next time there's a vacancy. And there is one right now. um, Why don't we do something where we can actually vote for the senators that we have in place? So we went from a situation, especially in the 1990s, when people were very upset about the Senate uh, they wanted to get rid of it. They wanted to change it. They wanted to reform it and to make it an elected body. Oh, I remember. Uh, yeah. Now, now we just don't care about the Senate. Very few people actually have thoughts about what to do with this. And there's no consensus on where to go forward.
0: We seem to care when there is scandal, though, don't we? Because a few years back when it was the spending scandal, boy, then people cared about senators.
2: Well, what is really fascinating here is um, we do pay attention when something goes horribly wrong. You know, we remember those expenditures, uh, the homes, the 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 airplane flights. Uh, people were more likely to pay attention to the Senate when something goes wrong. And and ultimately, I think this is also part of the reason why BC residents don't care too much about it. You know, we didn't have any senators that were part of that group, so. Part of it is not knowing what happens and not having that level of engagement. You know, we all get a letter once a month from our N.P. from our M.L.A. We know nothing about the senators because they don't need to get our votes three, four years from now.
0: Okay, so did we? Did you ask people about what they would like to see happen with the Senate?
2: Yes, we have one-third who say that they want to reform the Senate to allow Canadians to elect their senators. This is the most popular option, but it's also very complicated. It will require constitutional amendments. There are 16% who say, let's just close the door, do something else, turn it into a daycare, abolish the Senate altogether, which is also very complicated for the same reasons. Only 13%, like the system that we have now, which is essentially a selection committee, that seeks uh, nonpartisan senators and going back to the same process that we have with Mulroney, with Gretchen, with Harper, letting somebody uh, who is in charge of the federal government say who becomes a senator is only popular with 7%. So we don't even have consensus on this. We have a group that says just I don't want to see the Senate anymore. But twice as many Canadians are saying we have to find a way to reform this and to allow people to elect it. Now we go back to the Charlottetown referendum back in 1992. That was the last opportunity to do something like this. And there's really no momentum here. None of the federal political parties are actually talking about this.
0: No, that's the thing that gets me about this survey is that you see these high numbers for people who want to do something and change it. But I mean, we've we've had two elections in four years and this hasn't really come up.
2: Not at all. I think part of what happened, if we go back to the early stages of the 2015 campaign, we need to remember at the time... Thomas Mulcair was leading. The NDP has had a very strong position about getting rid of the Senate. There was an expectation that under Prime Minister Mulcair, if he had won that election, then something drastic would happen. He didn't win the election. And of course, we know that the Liberals and the Conservatives have a lot of senators in place. So maybe it's not in their best interest to say we're going to get rid of it. If the NDP had won, it would have been very different back in 2015.
0: Oh, so interesting. Mario, thank you for your time on that.
2: My pleasure. See me anytime. That's
0: Mario Canseco, president of Research Company. He's done this absolutely fascinating survey on whether or not British Columbians, so all of us out there, can identify a senator that serves in the Red Chamber in Ottawa. Turns out only 4% of British Columbians are able to correctly identify the province's current senators. And right now you're thinking, well, a lot of us are thinking, well, who are they? Well, there's Larry Campbell. You remember Larry Campbell, of course, right? Former mayor of Vancouver. There's Bev Busan, There's Yona Martin. There's Yuan Pau Wu. And there's Mabina Jaffer. Those are the province's current senators. Could you identify them if they were walking down the street and you bumped into them? Probably not. And yet, as Mario correctly pointed out... We do tend to get worked up when it comes to the idea of changing things in the Senate. Or as soon as the senators are back in the news, then we really have thoughts about changing it. We should elect them. We should abolish it. Uh, It is so fascinating, though, to see that other than that, we really don't pay attention to what's going on there, do we? If you want to weigh in, Simi at CKNW.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Lots of stories in the news about this trucker convoy, this protest that is going to Ottawa to, well, essentially try to talk to the federal government about the vaccine mandates put in place for truckers. We have talked about it earlier on the show, too, where really it's come to represent more than just the situation with truckers. It clearly is found, um, I don't know, it's hit a note with a lot of people who have issues with vaccine mandates, not just truckers. But business groups across the country are getting involved now, and they are urging the Prime Minister to delay the vaccine mandate for cross-border truckers because they're concerned about supply chains. Now, to talk more about this is Anita Huberman, the CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. Anita, thanks for being here. Good morning. Now, Anita, why would the Board of Trade get involved in this at this point? Because it clearly has become something much bigger than vaccine mandates for truckers.
4: Absolutely. As everyone knows, Surrey is a border city. Uh, Truckers were deemed essential since the beginning of the pandemic. And we know and we realize that vaccination is absolutely important. But uh, what we're asking for is that the federal government delay implementation at a time when supply chains are under severe pressure. And they use that time to encourage and facilitate vaccinations. You know, on the other side, you know, it uh, boggles my mind as to why truckers are not vaccinated. I know many of them are, but some are not. And why is there this resistance? But um, now is not the time uh, when we're facing elevating cost pressures on the grocery shelves. Uh, We're not seeing the goods that we need in order to survive, um, especially for our business community and for consumers.
0: How much of an issue has that been? What have you heard from businesses in terms of their ability to get the goods that they need?
4: They as well, I've heard as as much as five months uh, they've had to wait for goods. Uh, you know whether it's uh, some type of a product uh, that they need from Toronto, for example, um, or from the U.S. to make a product. Um you know, the the supply chain issues are not only cross-border, uh, but it's also interprovincial related as well. And there is uh, just a cyclical economic effect uh, when it comes to supply chains, inflationary pressure, uh, as well as uh, increasing costs.
0: So what do you think the federal government should do here?
4: Delay the vaccine mandate. Spend the time uh, to talk to these truckers and encourage them to get vaccinated. Uh, Delay the vaccine mandate for now. There needs to be an opportunity for dialogue. And really, this should have been done a long time ago. Uh, I don't know why this is happening right now. But uh, the Prime Minister needs to delay the vaccine mandate, engage in an immediate dialogue with uh, all of those types of uh, trucking businesses and associations And uh, really ensure that our supply chains are not compromised, that we are not as a business community facing more increased costs.
0: And when it comes to that right now, like the increased costs, how much of a struggle is it for businesses that you're hearing from? Is this going next couple of months? Will we start to really feel the effects of this?
4: Where they're already feeling the effects of it. It's not only related to this, it's uh, related to increasing costs uh, for taxes, uh, for, uh, you know, gas, um, electricity, um, you name it. There are increasing costs for businesses all over the place. And uh, they're being passed on to the consumer. How much more can a person afford uh, in the face of increasing costs and when wages you know, don't go up?
0: So business groups across the country are doing this, but how how will you get the attention of the government? Does it even seem like they are listening at this point?
4: I think they're listening. Our head office, the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, which is right in Ottawa, um, our president, uh, Perrin Beattie, is uh, right there every single day. Uh, with the various trucking and manufacturing associations, uh, meeting with uh, the relevant ministers. And certainly, uh, you know, we have the weight of uh, our 6,000 member contacts uh, behind the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. I know they're paying attention. They always pay attention to the Chamber Board of Trade industry.
0: How bad has it been, or has it improved at all in the last couple of months? I mean, I know that BC had a terrible November with what happened with the highways, but have things gotten at least better on that front?
4: I think that uh, right now we're still feeling the effects of what happened uh, in November. It's too early. Um, we're at the end of the, uh, January, uh, if you can believe that. And uh, I know businesses, um, especially our manufacturing community, with the greatest number of manufacturers in Surrey, are still feeling the pain uh, of what happened in November, what happened in the summer, and, uh, and all of the other pandemic-related
0: effects. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time on that this morning. Thank you, Simmy. Anita Huberman is the CEO of the Surrey Board of Trade. They are one of the business groups from across the country that is calling on the federal government to ease the vaccine mandates for cross-border truckers. And they're looking at it from a supply chain issue, saying the supply chain is congested, it needs some help, and they feel like... Any little thing right now that would add to the burden is a concern for them. The Prime Minister did talk about this yesterday, where he once again defended the mandate. He believes, he said that the vast majority of truckers are vaccinated, and that he's talking about a small number here. But even that small number, according to the business groups, is a number that is going to have an impact on the supply chain. Now, I got a really good email about this uh, from Mark. And Mark, you make an excellent point. So thank you very much for doing that. Mark wrote me to say, I think you guys in the media have a huge misunderstanding about this number, this 90% vaccinated. Uh, Mark says, yes. There are probably 90% of the population vaccinated, but I guarantee you that number is only because of the mandates and people being forced. They had to get vaccinated so they did not lose their jobs, Mark said, like me. So he said your 90% doesn't necessarily mean that they agree with being vaccinated, and they didn't necessarily like that they didn't have a choice. He said, I know I didn't feel like I had a choice. I have to put food on the table, Mark said. I have a job. I can't afford not to work. So I got vaccinated. He said, I'm part of that 90% that you keep referring to, but I guarantee you, he says, he believes that more than half of that 90% maybe wouldn't have gotten vaccinated if they hadn't been mandated to or afraid they were going to lose their job. I think you make an excellent point there. That's true. We cite that 90% about, oh, look, everybody got vaccinated. But a lot of those people in that group perhaps do agree with the protest that is going on on that. If I want to weigh in, simmy at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi.
2: I don't know anybody that goes to the hospital and watches the paper parking. You know, going to the hospital is a traumatic experience. I don't care if you're going for elective surgery or anything. And paying for parking is an absolute nuisance. By God, if you're going there to visit a loved one that's sick or somebody endangered or you're in an emergency and you got to rush out there to pay for parking, it's the most absolute insensitive thing to do at the worst time possible.
0: Amen, brother. I mean, I'm convinced, and that's how I feel about it too. But I guess the question is, well, where do we draw the line? So who gets exempt from pay parking, and who does not? We would still love to talk to the health minister about this. We're hoping he's going to join us this week. Obviously, with COVID, it's been a very busy week, but we're still following up on that for sure, getting lots of uh, feedback on this. Our Raji Sohal is back with us to talk more about it as well. Good morning, Raji.
5: Good morning, Simi. Yes, it would be great to get Adrian Dix on our show to talk about this because since he announced that pay parking is coming back to hospitals, people have been really riled up about it. And as you mentioned before, there's an olive branch in there, kind of, that there are going to be some exemptions, um, including for uh, people who are there getting cancer treatment, they might be on dialysis, uh, for parents of sick children who um, perhaps have to spend an overnight at the hospital. But like you said, Simi, drawing that line is so tricky because when one person is sick at the hospital, that might mean that so many family members um, and other caregivers too will be visiting them. And they're affected by whatever that patient is going through as well. And ultimately, this is going to come down to the province uh, coming up with a balance of saying, okay, we need the revenue. They will say that they need the revenue, um, but at what cost? And the revenue argument, it doesn't fly with a lot of people, including John Buss. He's from an advocacy group called Hospital Pay Parking.
2: Removing the revenue from pay parking will not make a material difference in the healthcare experience. And that's been threatened for many years prior to COVID-19. The standard line was if we shut down revenues from the parking lots, patient care will suffer. And that's documented on our website, hospitalpayparking.ca. So I think that's, that's the problem. It's easy money, it's lucrative. And those I've spoken with, have had great difficulty in thinking, what would I do without that extra 15 million here, or the, the 30 million, 35 million annually that's brought in in the province? What will we have to cut? I don't think that's a valid argument, particularly after the last two years where we have seen um, huge changes in, in hospitals and what's going on in general with the, uh, the pandemic.
5: Yeah, Simi, I'm getting the sense that a lot of people think the government could figure this out, that they don't need to start charging everybody again. And I got a lot of emails on this topic from folks who said they want to see actually not just patients covered, but uh, people were saying, hey, doctors and nurses do so much for us, they should be covered too. But then when you say that, then okay, what about other staff? What about cleaning? What about volunteers? I talked to one woman, Lori, and during her husband's cancer treatments, she said she made a lot of trips to the ER at Royal Columbian, at Eagle Ridge, at Surrey Memorial Hospital. And she said she saw firsthand day in and day out how emotionally traumatic it was for the patients and families there. And then they would have to set timers on their phones and whatnot to remind them to run out and pay the parking. Like it was just this jolting thing and a stress that was on top of having to be there with their loved ones was just really hard. And she's one of these incredible people who after having had that experience, it motivated her to volunteer. And so she did at Surrey Memorial Hospital. She wants to see volunteers contribution uh, appreciated at hospitals. She wants to see them get free parking. And she says it should be done as a gesture of appreciation volunteers
3: are there because they want to be uh, they have they come in with a different mindset they're not run off their feet they are caring and come in with a warm caring heart and i And I'm not saying anything wrong against the hospital workers. I'm just saying that they desperately need help. And we are, as volunteers, come with an open heart and compassion. And I think that volunteers should definitely be exempt from the pay parking.
0: Okay, Raji, this is so interesting because obviously, again, it's that where do you draw the line? I had an email from someone who wants to remain anonymous who said, I'm a registered nurse whose unit was moved to UBC Hospital from elsewhere during the pandemic and I may not be able to go to the former site. I never would have deliberately chosen to work there due to the distance. This person says, I have found that in general, the hospital has a harder time getting staff due to this reason. The parking is $129 a month. If we end up having to pay, I will consider working elsewhere due to the traveling cost. And now the parking, I think others will also having free parking. This person says that hospitals could be a good start for retaining nurses. (laughs)
5: <laughs> That's really interesting. That is so interesting. Yeah, with rising costs of living in Metro Vancouver, who can afford an extra one hundred and twenty? And in some cases, a parking pass. Uh, you know, downtown in the core of downtown can run someone up to three hundred dollars a month. So we know that it adds up. It's a lot. And should that burden be placed on people who are already going through so much? You know, one retired uh, doctor that I spoke to, Clive Bert- Bruton, He works uh, on the island, or he did work on the island, rather. And he, I talked to him about this he said he doesn't care so much about doctors and nurses getting free parking except for, you know he wanted to see ER doctors, obviously, ensure that they can quickly park and get out of the, the car and run in. Um, but he said that it's a matter of the Canadian Health Act that because in the Canadian Health Act, it says that uh, it states that you have to protect, promote and restore the physical and mental health of pe- of our citizens and to facilitate reasonable access without financial barriers. That uh, pay parking, is a financial barrier for a lot of patients and their loved ones at hospitals. So I would be very curious to see if the government holds this line, continues to hold this line about revenue and about abuse of the system um, and the, and no, making note of these few exemptions, if they hold that or if they're willing to change and shift because, yeah. oh, the people are speaking.
0: They certainly are. Raji, thank you so much for that. Thanks, Simi. So Raji so while they're talking about hospital pay parking and where do we draw the line? Uh, clearly it is being abused. I've heard so many complaints from people about you know the way it's being abused. So then how do we introduce nuance into the system so that the people who need Uh, to have free parking, get that free parking. And where do we draw the line for that nuance? We are hoping to talk to Health Minister Adrian Dix about this. we put in multiple requests. We know he's busy. We're moving things around. We're really hoping to get a fingers crossed. We'll talk to him this week about this topic. But keep your comments coming. Simi at CKNW.
2: This is Mornings with Simi.
0: Let's talk about a little history, shall we? Because the Vancouver Canucks made some yesterday. They named their first female assistant general manager, but I have to tell you, After reading all about Emily Gay, my only question was, what took so long? Why did it take the Vancouver Canucks even until 2022 to hire somebody so incredibly qualified? The resume is amazing. Uh, She'd been the first female NHLPA certified agent in Canada. That was since 2016. She's represented players at all levels, the NHL, AHL, junior, internationals, you name it, a bachelor's degree in finance and a lawyer and a law degree you just wonder what the heck was taking so long. What does this mean though, for the success of women in the NHL? Joining us now is Brianna Waldman, faculty instructor with Camosun college's sports management program. Brianna, thanks for being here.
6: Thank you so much for having me.
0: What did you think of the news?
6: Honestly, it is so exciting for me as a teacher in a sport management degree program here, especially on the West coast. And just for women in general, I'm a female ex athlete and, It honestly just, it makes my heart really, really happy and super excited for my students as well. And why is that? Like, is it something that you can say, look what happened? Yeah, exactly. I mean, currently right now, and in our program, we have about 18 to 30% female identifying students. And for me, standing at the front of the classroom, that's just not enough. And so I think there's still a big disconnect between female athletes and then how it can translate into women actually working in sport and succeeding in sport. And I think having examples like this that I can share in my classroom that my students can see in the real world, it's just going to really inspire them all and, and hopefully draw more students this way that think that, you know, their goals, like things like this are actually possible.
0: And do you think this is more possible now, perhaps with other teams? Like did the Canucks kind of break through a bit of a barrier here?
6: I mean, you'd always like to think so, that someone has to go first, and once someone goes first, especially when they can see the success that it possibly has, that more people are willing to see that it's not actually that unique to have a woman in some of these roles, that as long as they're qualified, women know sports just as well, that that's not something that's now anything more exclusive to men, and that we can carry those roles just as equally as a man can, so...
0: So, when you look at the qualifications, I did wonder, and did you wonder, like, what took so long? I mean,
6: I always wonder those things, but I guess these things sometimes happen slowly. Change is hard for, for a lot of people, and I think, personally, I mean, it's, it's my perspective that, that, again, it's scary to be the first one to make that change, and to, for some people, take that risk, I guess. For me, it's not a risk. It's just hiring the right person. And, you know, it's better to start now than not start at all. So
0: So when you, when your program, for instance, you're training people to go into sports management, like how many women would you say you have in the program?
6: Yeah. So as I said, it's about 18 to 30% female identifying. We have quite a few students who have gender neutral names, which I love. So sometimes it's hard for us to figure out the numbers, but it's definitely significantly less. In some of my classes, there's as many as four out of 30 plus students. And then in some, it's depending on the level that they're at, it's a bit more than that. And so for me, I mean, I've worked in sport my entire career and I definitely have always noticed that there's not enough women. And I think, unfortunately, still we're not seeing enough women in the program. And we would like to have more women, more female voices, just more variety in general, I think is really important in any industry to have enough individuals representing all areas.
0: Does it depend so on the sport, Brianna? Does it depend on the league and the sport? Definitely that that is a part of it. I mean, certain sports
6: are bigger for women than necessarily men and vice versa. And I think as far as the NHL goes, I mean, the NHL has, significantly more notoriety than uh, the women's hockey league has in the past although women's hockey is amazing there's incredible athletes and they've definitely succeeded just the visibility especially through broadcasting and things like that it's always gone a little bit more to the male side of things and so i think when you look at female and male sports there's definitely sports that women might have more success in but it's which ones have more visibility to the to the world and often female sports tend to have less visibility than male sports do
0: I was wondering about this, though, because like in Canada, you talk about women's hockey. Women's hockey has been Mm -hmm. huge. We know, Mm -hmm. you know, women's hockey, we've watched it. We've loved it. We've watched them win gold medal after gold medal. But yet it didn't, it has not yet translated to more success in the NHL, has it?
6: I mean, from what I can see and my experiences, I would agree with that. And I think you'd see a lot of hockey players out there agreeing. I mean, I can only speak on behalf of what I'm also learning and reading in the news as well. But as I mentioned uh, previously on a different interview that um, Haley Wickenheiser has just come out talking about, you know, hockey sticks representation and, and girls being able to, girls and boys being able to find hockey sticks that represent women in the, in the hockey leagues. And currently there's still only male hockey players that have hockey sticks. And so there's a lot of things still going on that I think are areas of growth for both sides of the league that will allow female sport to have more visibility in a lot of different ways. And it just hasn't fully been embraced yet,
0: I would say. Do you think, I mean, the NBA seems to have had more success in this in the last few years, do you think? I mean, the NBA is a really
6: unique industry, uh, in my opinion. They definitely seem to have a lot less fear around social change. Uh, they really, really speak up when it comes to a lot of social change matters in a way that doesn't always seem to exist in a lot of other sporting worlds, at least from what I can see right now. And I think because of that, uh, they're open to a lot of different areas of growth because um, they've, they've seen success by right. speaking up about those areas. Yeah. Right.
0: But even they've had a little bit of trouble. I know Becky Hammond was the, you know, the yeah. assistant coach with the San Antonio Spurs for years. Everybody kept saying, well, there's the next, you know, female head coach in the NBA. And it didn't happen because she finally gave up and said, I'm going back to the WNBA for the next five years.
6: Yeah. I mean, again, that's a perfect example of unfortunately still the growth that needs to happen because it shouldn't have to be a fight it shouldn't be like, if you are the best candidate, you should be the best candidate that's fact. It shouldn't have to be, you know, wading through thick, deep waters of a whole bunch of other stuff to try and show people you're the best candidate. I think personally, Um, honestly, your skills, your qualifications, your experience should all be enough merit to get the right job. And even people like Becky Hammond, apparently that's not enough still, you know, so still struggle sometimes. There's, there's just, it's, it's the start of amazing stuff. And I honestly believe change will continue to be on the horizon. And it's so exciting, but also it's just the beginning. It's continuing the beginning. We're not where we want to be yet for women, for all different types of humans. I think we're, there's still a lot of room for improvement in my opinion.
0: I love that. Brianna, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Brianna Waldman is the faculty instructor with Camosun College's Sport Management Program, talking about the hiring of Emily Castonguay, uh, the new assistant general manager for the Vancouver Canucks, the first female one that we've ever had. And that is a rarity in the NHL these days. So could this be opening a door? We'll see. But great call by the Canucks on this one.